Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, it's conference season. I mean, I guess it's kind of always conference season these days. There's always a closure conference somewhere in the world coming up soon. Uh, but the one, of course, that we're most excited about is uh, Closure Conj. 2015. So that'll be in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, here in the United States from November 16th through the 18th. You can get your tickets at closure-conj.org. Highly recommend you go and do that. It's a really good conference. I've been to every single one of them. I've always had a good time. Um, I would love to see you there. So uh, go on by closure-conj.org rather and uh, pick up your tickets. Don't wait too long. (laughs) Tickets can sell out and uh, it would be a bummer to wait until the last minute and not be able to go. Hope to see you there. Um, so, and actually, the one of the other places I hope to see you is in the Intro to Closure course, which uh, is before the conference. So that'd be November 15th, uh, sorry, 14th and 15th. Um, and I'm teaching that actually with uh, David Chalimsky. So uh, it'd be really great to have you come by if you're new to Closure or want to learn more in depth. We'll spend a couple days um, getting you up to speed. Should be fun. Um, and if you're not going to that, then you should consider going to Datomic Conf, which is the first ever conference around... Datomic, and that is November 15th. Um, I'm actually a little bit, a little bit, the only thing I'm bummed about teaching the Intro to Closure course is that I will not be able to go to the Datomic Conf, so uh, go, please, and tell me how it was. <laughs> so check that. You can find all that information, by the way, at uh, closure-conch.org. The other pre-conference option is uh, a property testing with test check um, uh, uh, pre-conference uh, session. Uh, that's also on November 15th in the afternoon. Uh, you've heard us talk before about test.check and property testing. It's a really cool, really powerful concept, so you can go by and uh, spend a little time getting getting uh, more in-depth with that. I think you'll find that you will level yourself up uh, considerably um, around your writing your tests. And uh, it is the afternoon right before the conference starts, so you might be in town already, already anyway. Anyway, like I said, you can find out information about all that at closure-conj.org. Um, like I said, it's conference season, so the Closure Conj is not the only thing happening that time of year. Uh, there's also Closure Exchange 2015 in London. That's not one of our conferences, but uh, you know, you should go check it out. It looks pretty cool. Um, it's in London. This is December 3rd and 4th, 2015, of course. Uh, the call for proposals ends October 25th, which is not too long after this episode comes out. So um, if you've got an idea for a talk and you'd like to go uh, give it in London at Closure Exchange 2015, you should run by there their website um, very, very soon and do that. Um, I think that's all I'm going to mention for today. We will go ahead and go on to episode 89 of the Cognicast. everybody, welcome, welcome to the Cognicast. Today is Tuesday, September 29th, and I am very, very pleased today to welcome as our guest a, uh, a, a closure developer and one of the co-founders of, of Juxt. I'm talking, of course, about Malcolm Sparks. Welcome to the show, Malcolm. Yeah, hi, Craig. Uh, it's really great to have you here. I'm, I'm glad you were able to take the time and, uh, and meet with us this morning. Yeah, it's really nice to be invited to the show, and I'm 
really looking forward to it. Well, great. So, uh, so let's see. Um, so we do like to start out by introducing our guests to people, but of course we have this tradition that I think is in in a in a way um, a type of introduction in and of itself. So maybe I'll flip it around slightly from the usual order and uh, and ask you to start by answering our opener question, uh, which I warned you about. The uh, this is the one where uh, we share with our our audience, uh, you know some sort of experience of, of art, whatever that means to you, um, that you have had or, or that you'd like to relate to the audience. So maybe you, maybe you can start us off with that today. Yeah. I, I, well, um, this is a bit close to home, actually. It's, it's a bit geeky, but I, I um, last year I went to the Barbican exhibition for uh, uh, a, a piece of uh, an exhibition which was called Dev, Dev Art Code Factory. And I went really to see one exhibit from Carsten Schmidt, who's a, a developer in London, and I'd heard he'd been doing some mad stuff with 3D. So I went to see uh, his exhibit and I, I just found, for me, art is, is really something that I'm not really interested in art for art's sake, but more as a, when you try and see an artist reach a level of, of accomplishment or a level of artistry that it transcends, transcends their craft. and uh, you know, I'm talking about that that sense you get from reading a Shakespeare play or, or listening to Mozart concerto, or, or where I mean, for me, the the big experience I had with music, I think when I was about 17 or 18, was I, I got one of my first CDs uh, from Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland, and I just was just blown away by how good Hendrix was at the guitar, and that for me, that level of accomplishment has, has really been what I kind of look for in art. I guess, and, and what motivates that. Um, so anyway, the, the piece I'm talking about was um, th a 3D exhibition. It was a, it was a huge installation, about three stories high, uh, of a, of a almost a, like a chandelier covering a 3D printer. And the idea was that the um, uh, exhibition attendees would, would arrive at the exhibition and could play with these iPads and could um, use this software to create three-dimensional models which they could then print but print to the 3D printer that was sitting in the middle of the, the exhibit uh, with this huge chandelier over it and it was only later on I, I kind of discovered that the, the chandelier itself had been created in the same process and printed with uh, and every single part had been printed individually and it had all and they'd all been assembled together and the whole art exhibit itself had been modeled inside three you know lots of three-dimensional algorithms which the developer had created and uh, so even from the, the software the interface that was so easy to use it was really innovative and it could be used by children it was just incredible and then the exhibits would come out of the 3d printer and then go into this showcase that this this big show cabinet that i think had also been 3d printed and the thing that was just mind-blowing to me that, that, that this whole thing had been open-sourced and had been created in ClojureScript and, and at a time when it wasn't easy to create stuff in ClojureScript and that for me was was really just you know, just amazing. So um, I don't, it, it, it's no longer running but there is a website postspectacular.com that you can kind of get a, an idea of what this thing looked like but it was, it was pretty impressive. Wow, I think that might be the <laughs> the most perfect merging of uh, of one of our favorite technologies and the answer to that question that we've heard in a long time. Uh, given that the, uh, the the art and very clear that it does sound like a piece of art was generated using ClojureScript, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was. I, I think there's some. I, I mean, there's other other 
artists in London. At, you know, certainly um, we've heard of um, you know, Sam Aaron and his music, and Joseph Wilk has, has been doing some stuff with 3D performance art, which is pretty pretty uh, impressive and, and really go put, putting closure in places that we never thought it would ever go I and mean, it's just doing stuff that is just completely mental so that's that's exciting to see absolutely yeah and i, I hopefully nobody took my uh, comment to mean that uh that this this particular piece of art eclipses another especially as you mentioned sam and joseph's work but uh in terms of answering the question i love that you were able to bring together our you know our our, our little uh Obsession here and on the Cognicast with all things closure and, uh, and the, uh, the the question of art. So that's very very cool. Um, well, awesome. So uh, and of course we'll put a link to that in the in the show notes for people to check out. Um, but I do want to make sure that we uh, move on from that question. It's fascinating as your answer was. Um, and uh, like I said, we flipped the order a little bit. So I want to make sure we come back to the other thing, which is to have you introduce yourself a little bit. I mentioned that you're uh, one of the co-founders of Jux, but of course that's not the only thing that defines you. So I wonder if you could. Uh, Talk to people a little bit about, hopefully, about Juxt and about your uh, your work and yourself uh, for us to get us started. Yeah, I, um, um, I met Closure about, about 2009, but uh, I've been working pretty much constantly in Closure since then um, at various open source projects. Um, uh, I think the most, I suppose, popular project I've I've been behind is is one called Biddy, but I also did a lot of work on uh, Liberator as well, which is a, a REST library um, and helped um, helped in, in uh, a few years ago with that. Uh, and uh, more recently, I've been working uh, on a, a library called Yarda and uh, a few other things that, that we've put on our, our Juxt GitHub, which we, we're kind of keen to, um, uh, in Juxt, be supporting uh, ourselves doing open source work. So I've, I've done a few of those which I've, I've um, which have become quite uh, somewhat popular. Yeah. Cool. I, I do want to hear more about uh, Juxt. I mean, I've certainly heard of them. Uh, you know, they're a big, as you say, both through open source uh, supporter of the uh, the closure world, but I think um, beyond that, I've seen uh, you know other mentions of uh, of, of Juxt, but uh, people might not be familiar with Juxt. So could you talk a bit about the company? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, we're quite a young company, actually, with, with only been going since 2012, and that was so about three years. And really, the uh, the genesis of Juxt was both myself and, and John uh, Pither, who um, we were in similar roles. In fact, we we um, had similar blogs. In fact, I I knew of John's existence because I I was working at an investment bank at the time, and I had a blog called Closure in a Bank. And I think I was googling it for for it once, and I I saw another blog called Closure at a Bank, and I mm -hmm. thought, well, that, that's some imposter who's ripping off my blog, but actually it turned out to be John. Um, so I, I, I knew, knew John because I'd seen his talk at the, at the first Euro closure in London. And um, anyway, we got together and, and we were in similar situations, uh, having introduced closure into our respective banks. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the things that was kind of both, you know, a common theme was that we both wanted to take closure or saw a huge value in closure as individuals and had individual projects and, and had, had led teams in our banks, but really wanted to scale it up and to offer uh, closure to corporates. And, and for the, you know, it, it's, it, it is quite hard to be the closure champion in an organization. And I, I found that, uh, you know, to be, to be partly my role, but I knew lots of other people were doing the same thing. And at, at a sort of level, 
uh, certain, certainly some companies will only want to uh, get closure from, you know, to buy closure or buy tr closure training from a, from another company. And so we definitely saw that we wanted to um, produce a closure focused company that would and we, because we love closure, we just wanted to make a closure-only company. Uh, and so we went to lunch a few times to, to discuss: was this a completely insane, an insanely narrow idea, or could it could we make it work? And so we we just decided to start the experiment. And we knew there was a lot of people in in London doing closure. We we have a great community in London. Um, the London Clojurians have has been going for I don't know, six or seven years, and um, is a really really strong force and and. and and, and that enabled us to know a lot of other developers like ourselves in, in London. So really Jux came out of that, uh, that community. And um, uh, we're, we're very happy because we, we've always wanted to create a company where we could write closure every day. That was my, my, my biggest fear leaving, leaving my last employer was having to go back to, to learn, you know, do Java again or, or Scala. And uh, I really fell in love with closure, wanted to do it every day. So, so this, this made it possible, but also knew lots of other people who wanted to do, to do the same thing. They, they, they were so enamored with closure, they wanted to uh, spend more time with it. So th that's really how it happened. Cool. Uh, it's a fantastic thing to form a company around because it's, I think it's fair to say that there's actually an organizing philosophy kind of behind closure that is responsible for uh, and I won't put words in your mouth, but it's responsible for a lot of people's uh, interest in the language, you know, talking about the things behind, you know, Rich's various well-known talks, uh, Are We There Yet?, and, and uh, you know, the hammock talk, and, and all that type of thing. So I like that, personally, right, that there's, a, that there's an actual philosophy behind the language. And I'm not trying to suggest that other languages don't have a philosophy. I, I think m most of them do, to a greater or lesser degree, but uh, I, I happen to resonate with the particular philosophy enclosure i suspect the same is true for you um but it does lead me to ask uh, so uh that's a really cool thing to found a company on in my opinion of, of course i voted with my feet here i am here i am at cognitect which you know has a similar <laughs> you know kind of organizing or founding principle but what uh what does juxt do well um we, we do a number of things actually we, we're um, mostly in project delivery um but we do we do uh, training. We have a training partner in Skills Matter in London, um, and we do private training as well. Um, and uh, a little bit of uh, advice and consulting that that seems to be picking up now. People are contacting us and say, "Well, hey, you've got all this project experience. Can you just help us give us some advice on on uh, on doing closure on on bigger projects?" But uh, yeah, it's really it's really just become a uh, I suppose a consulting firm um, where we all get to do. I mean, we we've always, you know, eat, breathe, and sleep closure. So we we haven't diversified. We just kept everything. All of the projects that we do are in closure, and that that I think has helped us be more nimble and, and I suppose more agile. In that, uh, instead of having to uh, the, the cost of switching between projects, and I move through lots of different projects quite a lot and the ability to have everything in the single language and often those projects are compared to their Java equivalents are much smaller um, it means the rolling off and paging in and out um, it is much quicker and uh, and whilst we we don't really have any strict rules about which libraries to use and that sort of thing as some companies might have we, we just sort of say as long as it's closure then then, it, then it's fine but but even that restriction that constraint actually helps us a lot it means that we can um, 
do a lot of projects with uh, less people and less cost, I think. So I think that's just really become a, a bit of a, an advantage for us um, that uh, with, with good developers, we can actually get a lot done, a lot, of, a, a lot achieved. And I think we've proven that on a few, we've had some, some bigger accounts where we've, um, we've uh, you know, big projects that have taken almost a year or so and, and, and really delivered um, very sizable code bases, very sizable pieces of functionality in, in, in not very much time. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, it's, you know, obviously we have a very similar experience um, and, and that actually leads me to uh, want to ask your opinion on something that I've seen and see if, if it lines up the same for you. Uh, what, what I'm talking about is I would love to hear your perspective on how the closure uh, market, and I mean that in the, you know, the kind of the, the money sense, right? Like as we look, you know, because that's a question a lot of people have is, is this thing taking off? Where is it headed? And from our perspective, you know, you look at things that are easy to quantify, like the attendance at the various conferences, uh, the CONJ, for instance, has seen, I don't know what, 30, 40, 50, some fairly substantial percentage growth year over year. And, you know, then softer things like the number of uh, sales leads that we see. And it really feels like it's, to me at least, on a, on a pretty steep uh, growth curve, possibly even an exponential one, at least at this phase. And I was, it, you kind of hinted that you're seeing the same thing, but I'm, I'm wondering whether, whether that's actually the case. I, I think it is, but we haven't really seen much yet. Uh, we haven't seen the, you know, the potential yet. And and I think I've got a lot of patience for it. I, I think what happens with the processes, and I, I saw this kind of when the Java language was launched, because I, I was around in 95 when they launched Java. And, you know, for a couple of years, there wasn't much of a, a take up. But because of, because of there was value in, in Java, and, and I noticed this having... Uh, when, when I picked up Java, I was doing a C++ project, um, which involved some networking and uh, I think it was some Corber and, 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 and so on. And when I ported it to Java, just things like stack traces and garbage collection and, and that stuff, that, I, that completely, uh, I completely understood almost immediately that there was massive value in, in Java you know that this is this was worth going for because I think it, you know it, it doubled my productivity overnight just not having to deal with you know GDB and core dumps and that stuff so yeah. and um, but it wasn't immediately obvious that everybody else realized there was value but then I went off to I went off to the west coast for my first Java one and then I went to some some other Java ones and I just just saw that the whole industry just exploded because they discovered the same thing that, that there was value in this and and i think money just find a way on investment finds a way of finding the value and and it doesn't do it immediately there are, there are lots of times where you know you have to wait for it but eventually money will money will find the value and if you if you really believe there's value in closure and and i really i really do um then it's only a question of time but i do think things are slower today than they were in in 95 simply because i think back then we didn't have so much inertia in that we didn't have huge uh, code bases that we do today and we, we you know it's really hard for companies to completely change everything overnight they can't rewrite everything in closure but back then the companies were rewriting everything they had in java so uh, i think what we're seeing is uh, a slower gradual uptake which will gain momentum over the next decade or so but i think it's a long-term process and languages do take a long time to embed themselves and so it, it's not 
it's not something that happens in months. It's really something that happens in decades, and we're going to have to probably look in 10 years' time to, to, to judge properly the impact of the closures having. Yeah, and I think, too, there's also the fact that, from what I can tell, and you can correct me because I think you'll have a better perspective on this, the rate of uptake uh, is, is, maybe not the rate, but certainly the amount of uptake um, is different in different parts of the world. Obviously, you know, we're here in the U.S. Um, we have done business in other parts of the world. But, you know, the, mo- the bulk of our business is here in the U.S. And it feels to me like this is where, and even though it's odd that it should be geographically rooted, given that we're all virtual these days, it still seems to be the case that um, there are parts of the world and even parts of the country where there's more or less closure. And I, and I think where you are... Um, Europe generally, um, maybe maybe uh, Britain and maybe London is, is different in particular, seems like it's um, earlier on the curve, if you will. Do you think that's the case? That, yeah, I think I, I think that's true. Uh, there's there's almost like a critical mass that you need. Um, when we started Juxt, I think there were, I mean, we, we wanted to start Juxt partly because we wanted to create the ability to do closure in our day jobs and for other other closure folks that we knew that for, for that for closure was very much an evening activity three years ago okay so there were some people who had jobs um but but uh, mostly people were 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 doing closure in the evenings and on on their own hobbies and you, you know that stuff and and now three years later it's incredible just how many people have got uh, doing closure in the day jobs it's it, it, it's um it's a remarkable transformation and and we're seeing not the same thing in every european city but the, the numbers of european cities that have have uh, closure groups now um is really impressive and and a, around the world we're seeing uh, more closure uptake in, in the far east and uh, um and all over the world really so it, it, yeah it, it's it's taken uh, it's taken 3 years for that to change really in london and and i think that's that's really a, a good model for how other cities will will develop so i'm you know again i think um i'm very patient i'm i'm not really interested in learning another language until i finish my career that sounds a bit strange but i, <laughs> I chose closure because i thought i i was sick of learning different languages and syntaxes and things and i'm um I, I was quite keen on the fact it was a lisp because then i, I thought it would have you know, at least it's 58 years old, right? So at least the syntax has stayed the course. So I wouldn't have to keep, you know, it had a, it had a good chance of, of being something that could be around for another 30 years. And, and now I'm, I'm very confident that closure will be around for at least another 30 years. So uh, um, that's, uh, you know, I think that's the, that longevity is, is um, you know, a good thing to invest in. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually came at it from a a slight variation on that theme myself, and in, I took a parallel track to you. I uh, was doing C++, was aware of Java, but came into the not C++ world, if you will, via C Sharp. And I kind of came at it from the same direction in the sense of, uh, you know, I had been on the treadmill of, oh, C Sharp releases a new feature or a feature set. I learned those features, and then I love those features, and I use those features. And I looked around and said, well, there's these other languages that have been around that already had all of the features that were being added, um, and the one that struck my fancy was at the time was Common Lisp. And I said, well, why don't I just go and learn that? And then I'll know all the features. <laughs> this is pretty much what you were saying. And I won't have to bother to learn them because when they hit, at the time, my, it was my strategy for for feeding back into my main career, C Sharp. Well, well, when C Sharp gets that new feature, I'll already know it or be familiar with something similar. So I think I think I have had an experience that's uh, that's very, very similar to what uh, to what you had. But I wanted to ask you about 
and I think it's fair to say that you've you've taken a hand in stewardship of closure growth, certainly in London, just because, like I say, I see your name and Juxt's name um, across various efforts that are going on. You know, I try to keep my ear to the ground in the closure world, even things that are happening overseas. And so I would love to get your advice to people out there who are maybe in a city where uh, closure hasn't really developed the sort of community that you've helped foster in London as to what things they could do, what things you found successful in planting those seeds and in, in starting to grow that community um, so that it can reach that critical mass and that growth can sort of start to take care of itself. Um, the London Clodurian community is, is was was very strong before uh, before Jux came on the scene, and, and certainly you know we're we're very much um, inheriting the, the you know the the, 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 the all the value that um, was there in in a sense that Bruce and uh, some of the other leaders in London Clodurians have um, have really created a, an amazing network, an amazing um, group of people. But I I, I think. You know, when I've been talking to Bruce about what he's done to to promote closure and how he how he runs communities, it's 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 very much about trying to uh, delegate and share the share the load and, and almost being able to take a step back. And, and so very early on, Bruce gives people responsibilities to run meetings or to talk or to uh, and, and so I, I think that just um, creating an openness. For anybody to talk and anybody to organise and and anybody to um, give a uh, it, it run a meeting, it 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 kind of has meant that there's lots and lots of leaders, and and so the thing has scaled from that point of view. Is it's really not organised about around one person. It's it's just it's just been uh, delegated so well. So I think that's that that's a good uh, takeaway about. Just good community building and being very inclusive, and uh, and keeping the thing open and accessible to beginners. I, I think one of the things that London has achieved is is to uh, keep the thing fairly informal. And um, when the group got too big, it split into multiple evenings and things, and it was, it was not encouraged that everybody go to every evening. But there was a kind of different uh different communities could grow and and i think that's that's really been the trick really and there's been other other groups that have started up in in other areas of the uk and west london and, and things so i think that's really the trick that's really good advice i like that focus on the on the community there's really no closure specific tricks but just you know be smart about growing the community <laughs> i like that and obviously, the, the as you say, there's there's lots of uh, good examples, to, uh, or, or or at least you know one very good example to be to be had in the London group. But I think that's true elsewhere as well. Um, I, I want to loop back to something that you mentioned earlier. You said something that I've actually been thinking about a bit lately. Um, you mentioned uh, rewrites. You know, you were talking about people rewriting their C plus plus and Java, and how now we have these larger systems and they're hard to rewrite. And I've been thinking about the fact that. Um, the rewrites are hard, and the reason is that if you want to replace a system that's in production, at least I think this is the reason, you can tell me whether you agree, uh, you know, your minimum viable product, we all love that term, is 100% of the features in the existing one, and worse, not just 100% of the features in the existing one, 100% of the features that will exist in the existing product by the time you finish the rewrite, so it's a moving target, if you will. And I suspect that you know, as uh, as a company that has um, 
Well, maybe you can answer the, whether this is true or not. Have you been asked to come in and rewrite existing systems, or has it been, you know, greenfield work exclusively? And if you have been asked to rewrite, what are your strategies for doing that successfully? Because it is a really hard thing to do. Yeah, sure. I think it it's really hard when you don't have a greenfield. John, um, my co-founder, was involved in a, a partial rewrite of the the Mail Online website, which was uh, one of the biggest website newspaper, or certainly the, the one of the biggest newspaper websites in the world. And and that that was hard. I think they try, they, they tried to rewrite the, the back end of that a number of times, and it, they wanted to keep the front end very much the same, but. Uh, you know the the trick the, the difficulty of rewriting systems like that is as as you say the interconnectedness now of software is such that rewrites tend not to have any uh an obvious business value because they you know a good rewrite won't really do anything that the old system didn't do you know it won't it would, it would hopefully be feature feature uh, there'd be feature parity and so it becomes um for not a lot of perceived business value and a huge amount of risk and the number of uh, I've seen other rewrites that have failed completely catastrophically um, and partly that is because when you're rewriting a new system you don't have the advantages of the that the fact that the original system is already embedded already ingrained into the IT estate and there's a whole load of stuff that it does that nobody knows how it does and what it does and so they're not formally specified they just grow organically uh, and that that problem has has actually been something I've been thinking about for for for, for a number of years and and how how do you um, how do you begin to rejuvenate the code base and and so I, I don't think that even with a sexy new language like Clojure that it's a wise thing to rewrite everything uh, or rewrite a big system but there are plenty of new systems that need to be written from scratch and there's uh, plenty of old systems that are almost ready to be retired so there is plenty of scope for doing new builds but just it's dangerous doing a uh, a complete systems rewrite from scratch. I, I guess I'm trying to understand where the boundary is. Uh, you know, it sounds like you're saying it's it's rarely a good idea. I'm putting words in your mouth, but um, do you think it's ever something that that people should tack? I mean, I clearly it's case by case. I doubt you would say anything but that. But you know, do you have any kind of heuristics in mind uh, or other thoughts around when a rewrite might make sense? I, I think the short answer is you should never do a rewrite. Hmm. Uh, that that would be the easiest thing to put into a state <laughs> a sentence. Uh, at least it's tweetable. <laughs> I, I think the I think of course it does depend. I think the more successful strategies, or at least it appears to me that the most successful strategies are ones that uh, are more akin to rewriting bits of a system. As you you know you you you, you carve up a system into different parts and you find the most painful parts uh, and you rewrite those and those coexist so you're still creating a kind of frankenstein system but you you can replace an entire system uh, in theory by replacing all the parts but they don't all have to be replaced at the same time the downsides of course you, you have to do that within an existing architecture and that existing architecture might be very painful to work in but i i think that the the size and importance of 
systems today means that uh, wholesale refactorings are, are risky, where you, you know spend six months just refactoring stuff. Um, I think that the, the the downside of refactoring is that you you can possibly you, you can very easily forget to do something or or to make a change you think is innocuous and it 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 actually uh, isn't and it causes an outage. I had a particular um, experience where I was cleaning up some XML in a bank and. Uh, the XML was indented all over the place, tabs, white space, and, and, and everything. So I, I decided the first thing I could do was an innocuous change to reformat the XML just so it looked nice and tidy. So I did this and I checked it in, and then the next day there was a huge outage. And in the post-mortem, we discovered there was some code that was grepping out of a uh, one of the, the XML files and, and looking for a line and then some regular expressions expecting there were spaces between an equal sign and the attribute value and I'd taken them out and so the, the grep failed and the system went down and and with systems that are that uh, unstable uh, the systems indeed that are in the most need of refactoring are, are the systems that are most dangerous to refactor so this is a conundrum I've been trying to to think about for many years and well, what do you what do you do then what's the answer and i think uh it's a little bit uh it, it's a little bit of trying to um uh look for parts of the code that you can rewrite and can rejuvenate uh, and high and almost isolate those parts from other parts that you can't and you keep on that process of delivering new value but at the same time you're, you're just looking for areas where you can you can find fracture points and you you can find interfaces between things and you can start as a cartographer you can start explicitly recording the dependencies that you find i, th I think the, the looking at a system from the point of view of dependencies is an is incredibly useful way of of mapping what's there and and uh indicating how your what your architecture is and indicating areas where you can rewrite. So there's an old saying that goes something along the lines of you can write and then insert a language you don't like in any language. So I could say, for instance, you can write Perl in any in any language, right? And so as I hear you talk about this, I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, so you know, you and I both really like closure, and uh, you know, we'd like to be able to replace uh, bits of systems with something better. We think something better uh, at a language level at least includes um, these technologies that we like. But I wonder, like, is there something inherent in, in the technologies or is it more about approach where the goal is to avoid the type of thing you talked about where, you know, you wind up with a system that's so fragile that white space changes can break a production system. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, is it, it by using closure, or at least by using closure correctly, are we gaining any advantage when you know 20 years from now, and we go to replace it with you know whatever Rich invents next, or you know some other brilliant idea, that we're going to be better off than we are um, rebuilding the technologies of 20 years ago? I, I guess part of my career was being parachuted into really horrible Java projects of upwards of two million lines of code and trying to figure out uh you know trying to figure out how to improve them really and how to fix them and i, I my my kind of um approach was to uh, take a, a structure analysis tool and find out what the dependencies were and find the most painful parts of the project and and really get the team to start right start writing them 
And I think the, that even the result of that process of having very good architecture and very um, uh, highly modularized code bases, and I'm talking about systems that we, we, we put together that had you know, maybe 200 modules in them. They were very, very well, uh, they were very modular. But even with that, the pro the, they were still, the, the bugs that you'd find were because the state was still uh, very, very difficult to map. You couldn't find out where, you know, who really was the owner of the state and, and the fact that uh, there were um, the very architecture of object systems seems to lend itself to uh, a splattergun approach to state where you have mutable state everywhere. Uh, and because it's changing all the time, uh, it doesn't matter how modular your systems are, um, there's a, still a whole class of bugs that you run into. So the, the uh, approach of completely separating off immutable state and, and, and mutable state and going back to value orientation and, and, and real values that you can trust uh, it's hugely beneficial, of course, but I, I, I still, I still have, I still pander after uh, modularity, partly because I find myself it's just too difficult to understand a whole, you know, a whole complicated system in its own terms. I, I, I just still find that a very difficult thing to do, and I, I can understand small, small problems, small systems and programs. So, so really, I suppose it's my desire for working with modular code bases really stems from the fact of wanting to work with small programs again and and I think uh, when we had small programs it, life was more enjoyable and I think that's that's one of the things I, I like about Clojure is that our, our, our programs are relatively small again. Yeah, yeah, that's a common observation that uh, very frequently the same program, and we'll just pick on Java, uh, expressed in Java and enclosure. Enclosure is quite often much shorter. Um, although it'll be interesting to see whether how much, how true that remains uh, once lambdas become more mainstream. Um, I noted that when I was um, first coming to Closure from C sharp, my programs back then written in C sharp, and where I made heavy use of things like link and lambdas and um, anonymous types and things like that, were were actually um, considerably shorter than their Java equivalents. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether that holds true. Now, I think that you hit on a number of reasons why um, there are still, in my opinion, at least significant advantages over um, a language like Clojure. You know, the separation between immutable and mutable state is still there in Clojure and still not there in Java, even with lambdas. Um, but uh, it, it's just going to be interesting to see the impact. I actually think it might be... <laughs> Even though it makes it, I think it makes Java a lot better language to have a feature like lang lambdas a lot better actually. It'll be interesting to see whether the effect of that is to push people over a certain threshold, such that they they see what a difference language can make, and do the same analysis that you and I did, where we go, oh, okay, well, if language makes a difference, then maybe I should be shopping for you know a language with even more features. Anyway, uh, this yeah, is I, speculation. I, yeah, I, I mean, I. I, I agree with that in part because I think expressiveness is important, but I think the other the other thing that really reduces closure code bases, at least on, on the projects that we've seen, is the the fact that everybody's using the the built-in types mm. and people aren't writing their own types and, and private versions of maps and their own private contracts. So they're they're not putting the they're not doing as much domain modeling. Um, and writing their algorithms at the same time, and and, and that that means that there's a hell of a lot more reuse in closure code bases because you're you're right you're writing an algorithm once rather than writing 
10 different versions of that same algorithm just for 10 different domain objects. And I think that's the thing that really bloats Java is having all these domain objects everywhere and then having to code the same algorithm 10 times, which is, so I think there's a, uh, there's all these different uh, axes of improvement in enclosure which add up uh, and it's not just enough to to throw enclosures into Java, although that will help. There's a whole load of things that, uh, you know, as we know, arrive in Clojure, which makes it a, a completely different, you know, the, 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 the uh, closure is bigger than the sum of its parts. It just becomes, you know, a, a whole package. Well, this is super interesting. I love the philosophy stuff, and you're obviously thought deeply about a lot of these topics, but uh, <laughs> I want to make sure that we leave time today to talk about uh, a couple of the other things you've been working on. Um, uh, you, you know, we'll just have to have you back on later to talk more about the, philo uh, the philosophical stuff. And so I watched a talk of yours recently on, uh, on Yada. I think it's a really interesting, um, and uh, I use this word as a compliment, little library. I think you would take it as one. Uh, it, maybe people aren't familiar familiar with it. Could you talk a bit about uh, uh, Yada and, and, and maybe BD as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Yada is the latest in a long line of libraries that are trying to do uh, semantics in HTTP. And by that, by semantics, I, I need to explain what I mean there. Um, most Java, most developers of when you're writing a website or a web API or, or something on the web, you're most frameworks will give you an interface where the syntax is done for you, but the semantics aren't. And so the, the, the servlet request, servlet response uh, classes in, in, in Java, it's a classic example that the, the framework or the web library will, will hoover up the protocol and, and figure out all of the, you know, turn all of the, the numbers into longs for you and, and they will present the, the web request as if it's a map uh, and that's what ring does as well uh, and then your job is to sort of craft the response but actually um http has a lot in it if you've got to craft that response there's you know lots and lots of error codes lots of different headers that you're meant to meant to do lots of different methods that you should support put and delete and post have different semantics and all those semantics are written up in in RFCs and you know it, it, there's just so much of it that developers shouldn't have to be expected to go and find all this stuff out and and implement this uh, all just above the syntax so that so a lot of people have realized that there is there is a level above the syntax that needs support from a library but it's just hard to do um, and so so Yada started I mean the, the, this has kind of got some history to it because I think it was back in 2009 um, Justin Sheehy um, from Basho showed off this single web machine that they'd written for it was in Erlang but essentially web machine produced this uh, what they call an execution model of HTTP it was like a flowchart that you, you you fly around and at each point you say uh, is this a post request okay then if if it is then go here if it's not then go there and and, and there was a an execution model that was was a, or a library that was ported to Clojure a number of times. I mean, there were, were, were libraries, I think, one called Clothesline and one called Bishop. And I think the most famous was Liberator, which did the, which really was, a, was a, a port of that same idea. And and so Yada came out of, of wanting, so Yada fits in that, that, that same fold of libraries. But I, I kind of started playing around with, yeah, we talked about building stuff from scratch right, earlier mm -hmm. in the talk, 
and sometimes when you're trying to, I had a few, you know, trying to implement Liberator and other Ring apps and, and, and stuff in, in projects, I'd kind of picked up a checklist of, of things that just weren't quite right. And, and I didn't really know how to solve them, but you know, they were just things that I wasn't really happy with. Um, one of the things in Liberator that was pointed out to me, I was doing a talk at QCon, um, I think it was 2013 or something. I was I was talking uh, to uh, about Coresync actually, but I was I was talking to a guy who came up to me afterwards. I think it's David Thomas Hume, and we um, we you know he asked a question and we, we got chatting and we ended up going off to the after party and then then went out to the pub afterwards and carried on. We, we were just talking about Liberator and everything, and and he was saying that he'd actually created an async version of Liberator, um, which sounded really intriguing. But I I wasn't really cognizant of the you know this whole whole debate about async and sync that you know about why um different libraries were embracing the async model and so anyway he, he, he we, we started talking about it and, and thinking about it and it was just sat in my head as, as one of those things that liberator can't do because liberator the thread is following uh, a, a an execution plan and the, the there weren't points where it could that thread could stop and some other thread could pick up um, uh, or at least in the implementation of Liberator that was going to be something that was going to be hard to do hard to retrofit and so that was something I was trying to uh, and the other thing is that we were on a project where we had Biddy which was uh, I, I said I'd talk about that essentially what Biddy gives you is a, is, a, is a routing library that allows you not just to take a URI and figure out what the handler is but to take the original handler and and create your URI again. And this is particularly important when you're you're trying to construct pointers to other resources because no resource is an island and you, whenever you're generating a, a response to, to something, more often than not, you'll have links to other resources that the, the client might want to navigate to. So so anyway, the, the idea of Biddy isn't new and it, it came from, you know, it was ripped off a pedestal and that pedestal <laughs> came off the idea. So, um, I just wrote Biddy because I was trying to extract the pedestal routing on sure. its own and I just you know, found it difficult. So I wanted the routing bit to be kind of something that we could lift out and put it onto Liberator. Um, but that, so, so there was a, so we, we used Biddy on this project to, um, and it, it, you know, to, to create, create all these URIs and it, it, you know, and it was successful at doing that. Sometimes we wanted to, I think a few days before launch, we needed to refactor all the URIs and you know uh, without any broken links, and you know Biddy Biddy did that really well. Um, but we also had a mobile API for the mobile clients, and the mobile app was being written by some other company, and so we wanted to publish the API, and we used Composure API for that, which is from Metasyn. And the reason we use Composure API is because it has this Swagger integration, this beautiful Swagger publication uh, that it does, and that was just great for dealing with another vendor because you could say, well, what what endpoints do I call? What what are the verbs? What are the, what are the parameters? Um, and it also had this neat thing of uh, you could say what the parameters were going to be. And and this project, we, we use parameter coalition for everything. So you could say what the parameters should be, what they should look like in terms of this prismatic schema map. And whatever came in on the request was coerced to that. And if they couldn't be coerced, if you had a validation error, you would respond with a 400. Um, so we so we built a layer on uh, of, of parameter coercion on top of Liberator with Biddy, and then had Composure API as well, and we had a lot of stuff going on. 
And one of the takeaways for me from that project was like, how do we just just have one library or you know one or two libraries that does does all that stuff? Um, so Biddy can't do Swagger, but what if we what if we could kind of make Biddy do Swagger? Um, and the, re the reason Biddy couldn't do Swagger at the time was because Swagger is really not just information about your roots, but it's information about your resources. And Biddy had all the routing metadata, but it didn't know anything about the handlers themselves. So I knew that the, the solution was about creating data in the handlers themselves. And I, I looked at you know, how you do this. If you think about a ring handler, what does it actually tell you when you have a ring handler? You, you, you know you can call it but you don't know how many parameters it has, you have to guess. You don't know if it's gonna launch missiles or you know, take you know, 10 million years to complete the answer. You, you, you don't know because it's just a function. And there was an aspect of functional composition within Ring that is a bit black box, a bit, bit of a black box in that you, it, it kind of hides its constituents. You, when, you, when you compose functions together, you do so in a very closed way. You end up with just another function, but you can't see inside it. To what it what it was made out of and that's different from data because data's got this open comp you know composition approach you can give me a tree and i can associate into my tree and we can still see all the trees and see, see see all the data and we can decompose them again so uh, i i kind of felt that ring had this limitation um of uh of, of being very opaque the handlers being and not revealing the information about how they worked so, so Yard was really an approach to try and tick lots of boxes at the same time. Um, so to tick the async box, the uh, parameter coercion box, do all the HTTP semantics like Liberator did, but at the same time have Swagger as well. And I, I couldn't really figure out how to do all of this by adding or building or integrating libraries that already existed. I just had to sit down with a completely empty namespace you know you've been there where you just like mm -hmm. i just need a new line new project you know just start again uh, and and that's that's really uh, yeah fusing these ideas together and that's what i did last december and and yard has just been a few thousand commits since that just keep keep working on it keep, just keep looking at the specs um I'm, I'm just trying to be philosophically i'm trying to implement all of HTTP. So, I, I mean, it's different from Pedestal in that I Pedestal is very much geared towards solving real world problems and, you know, real problems that we have of producing APIs, async, integration with web servers and, and all that stuff. Um, whereas there are certain things that are not that important in, in writing APIs, I suppose, in, in some people's imagination, like content negotiation and stuff. Um, but for Yada, I just really wanted to to go back to rest, I suppose, and and just try and try again at creating a, a classic REST library that would deal with all the semantics of HTTP for the developer, rather than having developers just ignore this stuff and, and not be able to exploit the advantages of HTTP as a result. So that's a long, long-winded explanation uh, as to where Yada came from. Not at all. I think it was very informative, and and uh, and I I have I haven't played with Yada, but I have I have watched your talk from. Uh, and hey, you can solve a problem for me. It was at a recent uh, conference called. Oh, closure Clo tray. Closure. Say it again. Closure tray. Closure tray. Yeah. Okay. Closure tray. Closure tray. I mean, yeah. I I don't know. I don't know how you pronounce it in Scandinavian, to be honest. All right. I'm, we have a couple of Scandinavians work for us in Juxt, and 
I mean, like Java is Java. And then when I'd finished my Yada talk, people immediately started talking about Jada. So, <laughs> I, you know, maybe you meant to, I, I don't know. Oh, well, but, it, uh, I guess it remains a mystery. I've struggled with that one. One of these days I'll have one of the organizers on or uh, you someone. Get, you need to get someone from Finland to explain to you how you pronounce it. I guess I, I, I need that too. But yeah, that was a conference. Okay. We can put that in the show notes, can we, the, about the... We can put the, the conference details. That was last September. Anyway. It was just, just earlier this month, actually. Yeah, yeah. So 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 I saw that. And uh, one of the things that I um, – so overall, I have to say, like, the design of the, of the library seemed very evident to me. I mean, it was it – was, I felt like uh, when I do sit down to play with it, it's not going to be very difficult to get going at all because I think uh, you've chosen a lot of sensible defaults and the, the, the analogies with Ring are very um, prominent where they make sense to be so. So that's all very cool. The one thing I, that jumped out at me that I wanted to ask you about um, is uh, I think you included something that to me is like a secret weapon that just hasn't for some reason made it out into the world. Uh, and that's your support for SSE. I think that's so important. I feel like we have, we, the Closure community, has this set of weapons that, that make it easier for us to write single page applications than almost anybody else. Right, because we have a language that we can use in both places, and we have, you know, some really nice data formats. I mean, Eden and Transit, and we have, you know, these async web environments, and we have, you know, just all sorts of all sorts of tools. Oh, and of course, let's not forget things like React and how well a language that has immutable data, data types plays with something like that. But but then you have this key piece of of infrastructure, this key protocol sitting in the middle, uh, server sent events. If people have, and I find that people often haven't heard of it, and unfortunately. Like Ring really, like raw Ring can't really do SSE. But it, to me, it's this super critical piece of infrastructure for this very important problem. So I, I would love to get your take. On, first of all, I would love it if you would explain to people briefly what what SSE is, and then if you have any light to shed on uh, you know its implementation in Yada or just you know your your take on its importance or anything like that. I'd love to hear that too. Yeah, I think it's super important. Um, SSE because it it allows us to send updates to single page applications and the world isn't moving. People aren't going back to create request response websites. They're they're going to create dynamic mobile like apps on 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 the web on the web. That's the way it's going. I, I was kind of betting against mobile apps being the default in, you know interface, but. You know, it doesn't seem like anybody's giving up on mobile apps. You know, everybody's writing mobile apps now, and 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 that's what websites will people will expect websites to to be what their mo what a mobile phone is. And and so single page apps are here to stay, and that's great because ClojureScript does them so well. I mean, we have so much advantage. It's such a secret weapon, as you say. We've we've got so many uh, things in the toolbox for writing single page applications. It, it, it's just brilliant. Um, but then. But then those needs to be updated, and the uh, you know the two ways that you can do in in HTML5 in that landscape of specifications, the two ways you can do it are through WebSockets, which I think the most famous one is, and and server sent events is a really a kind of seen as a lesser of the two. But but uh, WebSockets are really for writing games where you need very very fast, uh, very low latency. Updates and they're because they're for games. It's it's understood you don't really want a lot of security or you don't want to layer the HTTP protocol on top of it. About the only uh, the only thing that 
you know, is notable. The only connection between HTTP and WebSockets is really that you can go from an HTTP connection to a WebSocket. The server center events are much more around HTTP and they inherit all of the things that HTTP has, like cookies and headers and uh, authorization and, and all that stuff. So um, if you've already successfully logged into a website, then an event source, which is a, in JavaScript you have uh, in a modern browser, a, a new object called event source, and you can give it a URI and then you can treat it like it's a source of any events, just like the mouse, like the keyboard. It's just from a JavaScript point of view, it's just something that produces events and you can add an event listener to it and, and off you go. But they, they originate on the server. Um, and you get all of the, you know, as I said, you will get all of the HTTP stuff um, for free and the browser will reconnect if, if your connection's bad and it will go through firewalls and all that stuff. And, uh, and HTTP will also, you know, go through proxies and, and things so so it's a really useful technology for doing the kinds of work that we want to do i mean and uh, you said are there any things in in yada that or reflections on implementing in yada i mean i didn't really implement sse in yada it was, it was about two evenings work to get that working because i i i decided i wasn't going to do any async in in yada i was going to lift it all from a library called manifold i noticed that that zach tolman was building this manifold I think most people will have heard of uh, Aleph, which was which is Zach's uh, original HTTP server. But that used to be based on a library called Laminate. But Zach made the decision um, a while ago to rip out Laminate and replace it with this new thing called Manifold. And, and Manifold is his kind of async uh, umbrella stack for, for doing all things async, really. Uh, so the implementation in Yada for service and events was just a few lines of code. It was just so easy because um, it was already something that, that was built into uh, Aleph. I just had to add the semantics to it. And the semantics on top of that protocol is, you know, you publish two lines. You say, this is the event name and this is the data. And off you go. That, that Everything else is done for you. So it wasn't a lot of work, and uh, but it is a very useful, <laughs> it is a very useful feature. Uh, I need to spend, I mean, it's not, not finished in Yada. I need to spend a bit of time on it, but... Um, yeah, that that's uh, that was a very lucky thing that I had had a library that could do that so elegantly for me. Well, th th this is great, and I think I think there's more that we could easily talk about in Yada, but um, uh, but I, I think it might be time for us to start winding down. I don't want to keep you too long, and uh, nor our listeners for that matter. Um, you know, too much of a good thing and all that. But uh, you know, before we go, uh, I want to make sure I give you a chance to talk about anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners today, uh, you know, uh, that we didn't get a chance to get to yet. Is there anything on your mind? Not, not really, only that I think I was going to discuss, kind of discuss having the importance of taking a long-term view with this. I mean, mm -hmm. the view with closure, with languages, the things that you invest in, I, I think. Um, I was very lucky when I was at college that somebody badgered me to learn Emacs. And that investment very early on, you know, it took me a while to learn it, but that has always been, that investment has already been recouped many, many times. And I think that learning stuff, looking, looking at things in the long term, and say when you're writing an open source library to just think, well, you know, what is this going to look like in 10 years time? Or, you know, just take the time to let things evolve slowly. And, and uh, I think everybody's in a rush all the time with development. And I think there's a, 
the pressure with the new stuff in tech for everybody to want to rewrite the world and everything and 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 and, and move at 100 miles an hour and i don't think we have to really i think most of the most of the satisfaction from programming comes from when you can look back and um spend a lot lot of time kind of getting better at something or you know improving your craft so i want to kind of yeah, that was really that was all I had a thought to, to discuss was about um, looking at things that perhaps with a with a longer longer view than we do normally. Oh yeah, for sure. I think you're absolutely right, and I I, I particularly I struggle with this a lot. I think I fall prey to the uh, the whole get it done right now. If you're not typing, you're not working. All that all that you know hurry up stuff. So it's it's funny. You know, we have this tradition at the end of the show, which I really have really grown to like, which is, you know, people are where we ask our guests for a piece of advice. And it's funny how often we come to this part of the show and our guest has just given a really fantastic piece of advice, just as just as you have just now. Um, and so it's always a little bit funny to ask people, well, would you like to share a piece of advice with us? But uh, but that is the part of the show that we're at. And uh, maybe the one you've given is the one you'd like to share. I th certainly think it's uh, an excellent bit of advice, but uh, but I did let you know ahead of time that we would be doing this. And so perhaps you have uh, something yet again in mind. Well, what, uh, what advice would you like to share with our audience? I think if you don't already know how to touch type, learn to touch type. Mm. I think that would be the, uh, that, that really would be the best advice. I think that's just... Um, I learned to touch type at school, and it's amazing. I, I see a lot of people with a with a struggle with, you know, um, not so much programmers, but I see a lot of people writing letters and stuff with kind of two fingers, and um, I think the keyboard's here to stay, right? So I think um, it's a shame. Or maybe it isn't. I mean, maybe we're you know now everybody's got tablets. I think maybe will the qwerty keyboard disappear? I don't know, <laughs> but I think. It's it's a, a worth worthwhile investment in yourself, and I think there's a lot of things that are like that. Um, I'm very keen on learning about Linux because I think it's going to be around for a while. So I, I've taken the kind of mad decision to to you know I, I run Linux on my laptop as lots of people do, and I like to you know run I run Arch Linux partly because it's it's quite terrifying that every time you upgrade it and things break and go wrong and if you have to keep a, a machine up and running all the time because you've got client projects and deadlines and things, it can be quite uh, uh, quite worrying when you when you um, when things break. But I think I value learning about stuff um, more than I value my own productivity. And I think if you if you value learning and ed educating yourself, then your productivity looks after itself. You know, you just learn more and you get faster at stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think there's there's always a there's always a tendency for us as to to worry a lot when things go wrong and when you've not made any progress on a project for two weeks because of this and then this broke and then you had to learn about this and then you made a mistake or then you had to try it a different way and i think we we don't really value that i mean i see that as just making progress on another axis which is an educational axis and then you you finish educating yourself and then you you produce again and i think that would be I, I think, I suppose, so my only point of advice is like not to get stressed when things block you and when you get, um, when you, when you, when you feel log jammed or when you see too many obstacles, because sometimes learning how to get over those obstacles is actually the whole point uh, rather than the end goal. So I, I think that's, that, that would be my, I think that's, that would be my advice to my kids, you know, to, to not get so frustrated. We all get frustrated, part of programming. 
um, yeah. but to try and measure it in a different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that is two excellent pieces of advices sprinkled amongst the many others that uh, that I think uh, we could glean from your 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 wonderful set of insights on the show. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was it's really been a genuine pleasure uh, to talk to you, and I can see already that uh, that we would that we would benefit greatly from having you back to talk more. I especially enjoyed our conversation about kind of some of the more philosophical areas. Although it was really cool to hear about uh, your work at Juxt and about. Uh, and about Yada and, and your work there as well, but uh, just super fun to talk to you. So thanks a ton for taking the time to, uh, to come on and talk with us today. No problem, I really enjoyed it. Thank oh good, I'm glad to hear that. So we will end it there though. It is, this has been another episode of The Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes on our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Malcolm Sparks on Twitter at Malcolm Sparks, M-A-L- C-O-L-M-S-P-A-R-K-S. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.